Hello and a warm welcome back to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. It's great to be joining you for the 10th season of the show and I can't believe we're already 105 episodes in. It's been such a joy working on this project and as I've deepened my research and exploration into the themes of how we relate with one another with technology and the wider web of life, I've found many reasons to feel inspired and animated about the futures we could create together. That being said, one area I realise I've been avoiding is that of the ever-accelerating world and impact of technology, and in particular, AI, artificial intelligence. For me at least, it somehow feels easier to dive into the world of humanities, the imaginal and the creative, perhaps precisely because they seem more familiar and in a sense more graspable. And yet, if you've been watching the unfolding reports around the disruption posed by natural language processing tools such as ChatGPT or systems of realistic image and art generation such as DALI 2, you may share a creeping sense of discomfort, awe and perhaps even dread at the threshold we appear to be fast approaching. That's why, throughout this season, I want to lean into the questions of how we might reinvent and reimagine the roles and stories we inhabit as humans, both personally and collectively, in the face of a world increasingly influenced by machines. From the deeply creative and, dare I say, sacred qualities we wish to protect and retain, to the aspects of our cultures and characters we may wish to mitigate or improve upon, I want to explore what it means to be human in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. With that in mind, I'll be speaking with some of the most inspiring and thought-provoking changemakers around today. Visionary folks who are reimagining how we conceive of community, indigeneity, technology, belonging, fulfilment, creativity, resilience and much, much more. As we go along, I'll be adding relevant books and resources to a dedicated page on my website, which you can check out at natalinahai.com forward slash resources. I hope you'll find the season uplifting and empowering. And if you have any questions or suggestions for future guests or themes, you can reach out to me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. I hope you enjoy the journey. For the first episode of the season, I have the pleasure of interviewing Alexa Fermanich, an investor, consultant and facilitator on the climate crisis whose life's work centres on dissolving the boundaries that divide human beings from other forms of life and enabling nature to express its fullest creativity. Focused on developing strategies that repair our planet's ecologies, Alexa's work experience spans from political science and leadership development to corporate sustainability analysis, journalism, eco-cultural projects in emerging markets, land-based conservation initiatives, and climate communication. She is currently co-director of SEED, a new initiative housed inside the Crowther Lab at ETH Zurich that is creating the world's first biodiversity measure that accounts for all scales of life's complexity at a genetic, species and ecosystem level. Having co-founded the animist investment studio Ground Effect, to direct capital on behalf of other species and back ventures that maximise planetary generativity, her current areas of investment and research include regenerative agriculture, soil health, food systems, earth jurisprudence, ecosystem restoration, ecological pedagogy, new ownership models, biodiversity and scientific research that illuminates life's relational processes. As an author, poet, photographer and wilderness guide, she brings people into direct contact with the living world. In her role as an associate at Leaders Quest and through the company she founded, Atlas Unbound, she develops and leads multi-day immersive learning journeys for global corporations and decision makers, principally into nature. These journeys embody her thesis that we learn most rapidly and durably through direct experience and that visceral connection is a remedy to our systemic alienation from the living world. Finally, as a means to inspire a greater number of people in their climate restoration trajectory, she started the podcast Life Worlds. The show is an intimate dialogue with our planet's ecologies, where she explores the mindsets, skills and actions needed to partner with other forms of life. Her guests are farmers, lawyers, scientists, investors, indigenous scholars, artists and many others, who have all learned to be in close relationship with the life worlds of other species. 
Alexa, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you today. How are you doing? Pleasure to be here. I'm good. I'm, as you can see, bathed in sunshine in a winter day in Zurich, looking out at the lake and uh, doing very well. How about yourself? I'm very well, thanks. I am I am in a, what is now a very cold Barcelona with the curtains drawn so that I can keep <laughs> a modicum of sound uh, kind of isolation in my little podcast room. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And I'd like to start by asking you the kind of question that I tend to open these discussions with, which is to ask what you think and feel is going on in the global human psyche, if we use that as a frame. Wow, not a small question, is it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. I am always sensitive to um, speaking on behalf of so many forms of life that I don't know their their life worlds, their lived experience. Um, so I think in answering your question, I may speak to the psyche of, um, of that I have seen around me and witnessed around me. Um, and also possibly uh, the, the more than human psyche, I think is also an interesting question. Um, <laughs> maybe we can start there. No. Um, yes, please. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I had a very interesting conversation last night with some lovely people in Australia who are working on a multi-species um, jurisprudence concept, which is representing other forms of life and law. And they were sharing about the recent bushfires in Australia. And something that is that is striking me about the the collective psyche, if you will, and that of that of our our non-human kin, is that we're kind of there's two forces pulling us in diametrically seemingly opposed positions at once, but there's sort of this breaking apart of things that make sense. So whether that's a human being that can't make sense of the world because their job is being disrupted or everything they were told in university and in their career their whole life doesn't make sense anymore because maybe the mandate of growth, you know, exponentially doesn't quite make sense. Um, So on and so forth. And then there's kind of ecological breakdown, obviously. I think species feel that too. You know, you have migrating birds and suddenly don't know where to land anymore because there's nowhere to go because the trees aren't there. Or there's sort of this this this, this fracturing, one can say. Um, and I am pretty confident that other forms of life also feel that because all of the ways they used to move and communicate have been, um, are kind of eroding, let's say. And on the other hand, I think that we are grasping the preciousness of what we have. And so I think at the same time, there is this realization that this is the last form of the species, or this is the last rainforest of its kind. And oh my gosh, this is precious. And so, you know, some people call it awakening, transformation, whatever you want to to name it. But I think there's this recognition of a larger system um, and the care that we actually have towards it because we might just lose it. Um, and I think that's generating a lot of momentum in very visible and invisible ways. Um, and this kind of reformulation of our relationship to pretty much most things around us, our inner self, our outer community and then the world at large. Um, and so I think that kind of fracturing takes place within a, a moment of reckoning that in its own weird way creates more interconnection um, because it makes interconnection very visible. <laughs> that was already there. So that's what I've seen in the world around me. Mm. I love the way that you also frame it in terms of our belonging with more than human kin and taking the time to actually (laughs) step into the possible positions of of what it means to be migrating and no longer be able to to take refuge. Um, And actually refuge is a theme that I've been thinking about a lot recently that in the face of so much fracture and difficulty and challenge, And I'm speaking from the position where, luckily, at this moment in time, I have a job, I have a roof over my head, my belly is full, you know, this is... So it's it's responding to what I see and read as opposed to what I'm directly living myself. But when there is so much uncertainty, feeling into this sense of interconnection, I'm really curious about how do we create a sense of wholeness and belonging and connection and refuge so we can practice that now so that when things get harder... We have that route to come back to. We have community that we've been in practice with. We've got those lifelines that connect us when it gets stormy. And I'm wondering from your perspective, 
what is it that you find refuge in? How do you find a sense of belonging? How do you see yourself and those around you navigating the oncoming storms? Hmm. Wow, that's a beautiful question. And I think what's challenging, I'll speak to myself personally in just a second. I think what's challenging is that the answer I will give for myself cannot be the answer for many people into the future. Um, I have a few things that bring me refuge and belonging, but one of them is being grounded in place and this understanding that we are whole when we are within an ecology that we participate in, that we know that feels like a home. And as you've mentioned, that will be non-existent for um, many, many uh, humans and non-humans into the future because of they'll forcibly have to have to migrate and to move. And so I think the question of how do you create refuge um, and that rootedness in place, even if the place may not be what you recognize or it might be new. I've encountered that a little bit recently moving back to my home country, but not having lived here for a very long time and finding that many other places in the world have felt like home. And then this doesn't actually feel like home. So how do I find refuge here? Um, I've actually been quite challenged. And from having in the past found refuge in my participation in ecology, tending to it, watching its patterns, creating little acts of beauty inside of it, whatever that might be, you know, participating in the watershed restoration or local politics, um, this refuge in community and in being useful, uh, which I think is a core kind of human need, you know, to, to feel useful, to feel creative. I've begun finding a lot more refuge in, I guess, what one can call the more eternal truths that come to us from different lineages across time. Hmm. And there's this kind of trope that is, you know, you can find home inside of yourself. And that's the hardest one of all sometimes, isn't it? But I think where I find refuge is in some of my, um, let's say, Buddhist practices, which actually remove me from the immediacy of, of myself and all of Alexa's needs and graspings and graspings and aversions and kind of sinking into sinking into a more spacious and open openness where I sense that interconnection to many, many other things and my belonging to the ground I'm on. Um, and that cannot be intellectualized. It has to be felt. It has to be practiced. Um, it sounds really nice, spoken and written on paper, but it's, um, it's a feeling that one tries to put into words. So I find refuge in that. And I think the last thing I find refuge in is beauty. And beauty is everywhere. It is literally everywhere. It exists in the ways that human beings can care for each other around the world. It exists in the way that a little bit of moss breaks through the, you know, breaks through the, the cement and makes a little forest. I was looking at one this morning outside. Um, it's in the funny ways that human beings interact with each other on buses, you know, and you just kind of watch... Watch the ways that these, these, you know, these homo sapiens interact <laughs> and the world is filled with delight and just kind of hilarious little moments that are very beautiful. If you just kind of put down your phone and uh, take something out of your ears once in a while and just kind of look around and listen um, and feel. And so I think if anything, the, the refuge and the beauty is, is by far a big source of nourishment for me. Mm. It's funny, isn't it, that there seems to be like with that, nexus of connection with that which is outside of ourselves so whether it's going for a walk and noticing the moss and the concrete or you know if you're lucky enough to live somewhere where you've got access to green spaces the connection that feeling of reaching out and being in something that's bigger is not only the conduit towards our reckoning with grief but also our reckoning with connection and, and belonging and and there seems to be something in that of opening a space that can hold both and what you mentioned about beauty really touches me. I've been, I've been thinking a lot recently about the use of and value in music and art making and poetry and shared singing. And, and it doesn't have to be kind of, for instance, my, like my heritage on my father's side is Catholic and my mum's, it's kind of Catholic, Jewish and Baha'i. So it's kind of quite a mix and there's lots of singing in both traditions or in all, all of those traditions. But it doesn't have to be this kind of heavy thing where you have to sing the hymns of your forefathers. It can be something as simple as singing a Joni Mitchell song together or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and there's something beautiful in the immediacy of voice and beauty in the everyday that it doesn't have to be something which is this 
thing that's put on a pedestal that's beyond us that exists in a separate sacred space that that you can bring that quality to everything that you do you know I mean obviously not all the time because you've got business meetings and emails and the rest of it that get in the way but there is something about the proximity of beauty that it's in the way of relating the way of looking the way of perceiving the world um you're nodding I wonder what your sort of what your thoughts are on that I don't want to interrupt your flow before asking you other questions Oh no! There's there's a few things that came to mind when you when you described the scene together. There was this um, this notion just of resonance, and you know, in the same way that particles attune to each other and brain waves attune to each other, there's something really splendid about singing, whatever it may be, together, or humming together, and that creates that resonance. And the other thing I was thinking about that kind of, as you said, the proximity of beauty um, and bring this quality to all you do. I began the year, um, I work in a science lab and uh, conversation so far has not been so scientific, but maybe it has been. <laughs> and there is an interesting thing happening inside of the climate movement where more and more activists, people on the front lines, people working on policy are realizing the need for self-care and are either tricked or lulled into going to different types of retreats. Huh. Um, and um, Plum Village, which is a... Buddhist monastery center um, that was begun by Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a very inspiring Vietnamese monk and um, activist and has written countless books on, on engaged Buddhism, one could say. Really beautifully translated for the West. I'm sure you, you're nodding, so you know of him. Um, we started off our year there, uh, a few of us from the lab, uh, for about five, six days in uh, quite, you know, modes of silence and slow walking and what was so astounding for me was this idea that, you know, there was an anecdote that someone shared that, you know, Tignan Han, when he would open a door, it would be like an art piece and it would be the only thing that his mind was set on. And like no one ever opens a door in that way, you know, and, and the sense of, can I make the way I drink my tea, the act of beauty? Can I give it all of my attention? And it has to come with presence and mindfulness. But when you're mindful about, I'm walking on my left foot, I'm walking on my right foot, I'm taking a breath. When you which is hard when you're doing emails because you kind of leave your body into your fingers into the screen. Totally. But I've been attempting to bring some of that that mindfulness in uh, because it is it is this quality to all you do that brings beauty to the way you pick something up, the way you gaze upon something. Um, you, I think you can infuse your actions with presence and that, that brings them a certain quality of beauty. I love that. It's so interesting that you're talking about the Buddhist lineage. I've been reading a book recently called... I may be wrong, by a Buddhist forest monk or an ex-Buddhist forest monk, um, whose name has just escaped me. But it's uh, it's really interesting to note in the story how when you go to a place which is built and created and sustained and supported with very particular intentions around presence and openness and non-attachment in mind, it really helps you to learn through practice and daily rhythm and sort of the cadence of how people live in these communities, how to cultivate these things and how then, and he talks about how when he goes back into layperson's life, let's say, it's crushing. And then what do you do? And then this, these threads back to the practice that he, he spent years cultivating of mindfulness, of, of presence. And it's curious because I think for, for a lot of us, I definitely seek this. I just came back from a retreat down in Embercombe near Devon in the UK. And it was, for me, it was a lot of it was about nature connection and it's it's so um, quenching to my soul to go somewhere like that. But then when you're coming back out of it and you step back into the stream of your life, the force of that water can be such a strong, impactful experience. And then the, the question I'm then left with is, for, well, there's several, but one of them is when we don't have the opportunity to have these pockets of refuge or a different cadence or rhythm, how do we cultivate within a frenetic depending on where we live in the world, but in many parts of the world, within a frenetic culture, which is oriented around, and you mentioned this earlier, around exponential growth, around productivity, around busyness, around disconnection, consumption. There's got to be ways in which we can bring a practice of presence into that so that we don't get swept along with the current and forget to actually live and to choose how we want to live. I don't know if you have any reflections on that before I ask you about some of your other amazing projects. <laughs> I had a, a big shock to my nervous system when I left the retreat and had many, many emails. And I noticed how quickly my fingers would type and that that action would cause anxiety in my body. Um, 
So I try to type slower because you can write an email in a minute and 20 seconds versus two minutes, right? And it doesn't make a difference, you know, or actually vice versa, two minutes, not 120. I think there is no other way but to take pockets of time and to slow down um, physically that I have not found another way to do it. Um, and so I have little reminders on my phone. I have reminders on my computer to get up, take a breath, walk around, close my eyes, feel my body. But it's difficult if everything around you is demanding you to um, tend to it and to be present. And you know, you're a mother and your kids are there. And then where, where is the me time? Where is the soul time? Um, this is a massive collective issue. Hmm. Um, and it's kind of a... It's a collective race to the bottom because if you slow down and other people don't, then you may lose out on that business deal or you may lose out on whatever it may be. Um, or all your friends meet and you don't and so you feel left out. So, you know, collectively agreeing that we would like to live in another way because um, we thought that, you know, higher productivity would lead to more leisure because we'd have more free time. And as we know, that's Thomas Jefferson's paradox, right? It ends up being <laughs> just... Yeah. Fill up the time with more stuff, don't you? So speaking about time and work and where we put our efforts, I'd love to ask you about some of the projects that you're in, engaged in. So you're the co-director of Seed, among other things. I love it if you could tell us a bit more about your work with the Biocomplexity Index, you know, what it is and how this assessment has the potential to underpin new financial and policy mechanisms towards a more nature positive world. Let's start there. It's an interesting transition, isn't it, from the previous conversation we were having to that? Yeah. And I think that it's and it's nice it's nice to make a link to it because when it comes to restoring nature, protecting biodiversity, um, ensuring that people have livelihoods and that food is grown and that water is existent, you know, and um, that kind of climate biodiversity space has been my career for the last mm. last quite a while, um, and I used to approach it through a lot of inner transformation. So things we've been talking about, um, bringing leaders on learning journeys and things probably like you did at Embercombe and training as a wilderness guide and bring people into the land, but always having a very parallel, quite practical approach um, to, to let's say, the biodiversity crisis. Um, even though fundamentally it is, it is born out of a, a deep, deep um, misunderstanding of our, of our place amongst life. And so SEED is very much one of the quantitative, analytical, um, technical tools for the transition. And I think it's, you mentioned about kind of holding a paradox before. And I think that as we think about building towards new systems, and I think as other guests in your podcast speak to, um, what do they look like? How do we do community? How do we do sustainability? How do we do all these kinds of questions? We do need to retrofit and fix a lot of the broken parts of the current system. Um, it's not the be-all, end-all solution, but it's a useful one to buy us time and to send capital to where it's needed um, and to divert capital away from where it shouldn't be destroying things. And so part of that is the quantification of nature in order to actually bring nature onto the balance sheet, as you can say, because right now nature has basically been uh, a free resource hmm. and we've taken for free, we create externalities that aren't counted for and all of this kind of true cost accounting. And, um, and there's a big movement now after the, the last few climate conferences, the two COPs and, and just in general corporate sustainability to say this is actually a massive accounting error and we need to understand what the, the very you know fundamentals that our entire economy is based upon. So how do you measure nature? How do you measure biodiversity? How do you measure billions of species and processes and relationships? Um, and that's kind of the, the task that we're taking on at the lab. So I work at the Crowther Lab in uh, ETH Zurich, which is it's kind of like Switzerland's MIT. It's the Polytechnic um, Institute in Switzerland. So it's um, engineering and science driven. And we're an ecology, an ecology lab. We have about 35 ecologists working across all spectrum of, of ecological um, domains, from community ecologists to population ecologists, some doing a lot more quantitative work, some doing restoration work. And it's this kind of synthesis of skills that's allowing us to develop seed. And essentially what seeds is, what we're building, is an incredibly comprehensive measure of biodiversity across all scales of life, which means that we can measure um, microbial fungal complexity. Um, we can measure genetics. We can measure ecosystem structure and function and wow. 
um, many other things that, you know, species compositions, etc. Um, and we basically compile hundreds of these global maps, many of which the lab has built. Um, and then we combine them with satellite remote sensing tools to get changes over time and also then add uh, ground truth data. So things like soil samples or bioacoustics, which is basically listening to the structure of an ecosystem, the soundscape, if you oh, will. That's so exciting. It's really cool. And it's a very um, affordable and democratized way to gather ecological information. And we're basically compiling that so that into an index, a tool, a measure that anyone on the planet can draw their about 10 meter squared pixel and understand um, their biocomplexity, as we're calling it, rating. And why that is um, super exciting is because to date, all the other measures out there only look at a few indicators. And so what ends up happening is you say that nature is, you know, X, Y, Z is these three things and let's measure them. And that is biodiversity. And then we create financial incentives to propagate that at scale. And that's really dangerous. In the UK right now, where I think your accent's from, or at least partially from, there is a lot of, uh, you know, newts, like these little salamanders. There's a lot of newt ponds cropping up all across the UK because the incentive that was created by the government was to restore very particular habitats with rare species. And so you may destroy grassland or forestland and put in a newt pond because that ticks some boxes, which is obviously not what nature would want. Mm. So basically, if you build entirely new financial incentive um, structures and systems off reductionist metrics, you're going to get very suboptimal outcomes. And um, a lot of money is pouring into the space. I mean, trillions of dollars in biodiversity credits are now slated to become the next big thing after carbon credits. And we can talk about the techniques of that if you'd like. But um, we'd like to offer a tool that is measuring the connections and the structure of the whole and not just its individual parts. Um, and then offer that to policy actors and financial actors and communities on the ground to measure their uplift in biodiversity or where damage may be occurring. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. So I think one of the things that, that interests me greatly around the conversation of finance and systemic change and capitalism and where do we make our investments and what can you do to disincentivize certain paths and open up others is this question of what kind of value and impact can we attach to money? Obviously, there's conversations around degrowth and green growth and then alternative systems of barter, but we are living in an interconnected, globalised, entangled world where financial systems, I think, are here to stay for a time, at least. I mean, I don't see how everything could suddenly... I mean, things could just come crashing down. I'm not wanting to tempt fate. But I am interested in getting your take on where you think our financial systems could go to talk maybe a bit about biodiversity credits and maybe if you feel comfortable what some of the challenges are in terms of either building alternative systems of value or shaping the trajectory of where our financial systems currently are headed in order to mitigate and hopefully avoid catastrophe just a small question yeah <laughs> <laughs> i recently wrote a piece um that if you do show notes, you can link to. Um, I called it Selling Nature in Order to Save It. And it touches, I think, a little bit on your, on your question, um, which is essentially how far can we actually go within current financial systems um, because the mandate of growth is so deeply baked in that it's borrowed energy, borrowed time, um, borrowed money, and it needs to keep growing in order to fulfill all of its obligations. You used to have debt forgiveness, you used to have jubilees. Um, and I think that we are, in terms of transforming the system, going to need to um, architecture a very different um, solution to the debt crisis that currently exists, because a lot of the growth is to fuel that debt. And there's interesting conversations in the space I operate in. A group called Nature Finance has been leading some of this work. There are, are partners with a market platform of seed around um, nature-linked KPIs. So, um, you know, key performance indicators, nature-linked KPIs for sovereign debt, which would basically um, change the ways that financial systems, um, well, change the cost of capital, let's say, in different um, countries based on whether they're fulfilling their nature obligations. And so that's really, that's really interesting because you get to reprice money according to mm -hmm. nature, not vice versa. Um, I think more deeply when I speak to in this article, because there's lots of things we can do to shift ownership, and, you know, steward ownership and cooperatives and 
redistribute power and equity. And there's this, you know, we could spend days talking about what you need to do to financial systems at large. When it comes to the interface with nature and when it comes to value, that's where I get a little bit nervous. Um, and that's what I speak to in this article. Because it's been shown that utilitarian values um, end up eroding at intrinsic values for things. And as um, and maybe I can explain that with an example in just a second uh, that I that I have in this article, but there is a often a internally motivated civic or cultural reason for looking after something, looking after you know the lake by your house or looking after your mother. There's an intrinsic reason for doing something good, you know, the right thing. Mm. When you introduce um, external um, sort of, let's say, instrumental values to that or incentives, I'll pay you to do it. It's shown that actually that over time in many different cases and experiments with um, kid, parents picking up their kids from school or in um, communities that uh, would accept nuclear waste as sort of civic good. The moment that you introduce financial um, incentives into it, you really can erode at those intrinsic values and it's actually very hard to get them back. And so my concern um, is that as we financialize more and more of nature and put a dollar price on pollination and bees, and on one hand, you can say it's already been financialized because you can buy honey, but we're just not doing the true cost accounting. On the other hand, when our relationship with nature becomes mediated simply by numbers um, and the economy in a way that it will happen increasingly because of initiatives like seed and others where we need to put some kind of value in. Um, I'm really concerned uh, as to what that does to this kind of more, let's say, spiritual, um, psychological relationship to others um, and to other beings and to nature. And and how you keep cultivating intrinsic values while the economy will, I think, create a lot of new biodiversity products and bonds and, you know, green carbon and, and all of these kinds of terms that are really, really, really useful. Um, but if you don't cultivate um, a society that also has a, a deeply first person or some kind of connection to nature, um, then it just becomes even more abstracted. And so it's that point around helping people to connect with, maybe reconnect with or cultivate access to those intrinsic values, especially in cultures that they kind of seek to kind of wedge us away from them. One of the things I know that you do is work as a wilderness guide and you take people through this Atlas Unbound suite of, of journeys and offerings to help them reconnect and many other things besides. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because that seems like that's part of the answer one of the answers to the quantification of, of our relationship with nature. Yes, very much so. Yeah, I lived in Mexico for, for most of my 20s. And while I was living there, I, I, uh, I was working in sort of NGOs and conservation on the ground. And then I realized that there was this massive delta between what was happening on the ground and what was occurring inside decision makers' heads and their relationship to the issues that we were working on. So I launched this company, Atlas Unbound, and we brought executives, politicians, CEOs, and other um, humans of, of influence into the land for a sort of deep ecology, regeneratively-based experience. And, well, I would probably answer your question with a question because, you know, I, went, I, I did my first vision quest two years ago, which is another type of ceremony in the land. And we need to rapidly scale all of these kinds of experiences where... Um, you know, when we bring people into hmm. the deserts or the canyons or the jungle, we would do a whole bunch of different exercises that are sometimes simple and very profound and ways of listening, ways of feeling, ways of being in the body. And it always, always, always comes back to being in the body because we know the world through our body. Um, and then you can intellectualize how and whom we should direct that to as quick as possible is the answer is everyone. But if we're trying to be careful with resources, is it um, scaling up forest schools around the world so that young kids get access from a young age and they're kind of imprinted in that very sensitive moment? Hmm. Because in 15 years, they will be the leaders or they will be moving towards being the leaders. Or do we somehow bring chief executives en masse to decide they want to take a little bit of time away from a busy schedule to participate in nature in that way, but then the effect of them coming back can be quite profound do you want to take mid-career professionals or young adults? I mean, 
everyone needs these kinds of direct personal experiences. And it's crazy that we need to take people out into something mm-hmm. um, because sometimes urban parks really um, do work, but it's not accessible to most people. And it's just absurd that we've built up such a world around us that it's not just part of everyone's daily life. Um, but <laughs> that is that is the reality of it. And so my question is this kind of spiritual ecology, this um, deeply first-person experience of interbeing, how do we scale that rapidly across society? Um, because the kinds of mindset and solutions that will come from that approach, I think are the ones we need for the climate crisis, the social justice crisis. It, it's, it's, it's an answer that's born in relationship to that kind of, um, that larger self, that larger ecosystem um, versus logically chipping away at all the kinds of things that we can engineer and fix. So I, I would love to ask you if you've seen things or have ideas or if your listeners do, because it should be for so many more people than what's currently happening. It's so funny that you've, I mean, usually I don't get the question thrown back up, not thrown, you did it in a very graceful, gentle way, <laughs> kind of reflect, reflected back. Um, it's funny because I've been re- reflecting on this for a while now, since last year, and where the leverage points with the potentially deepest and widest impact might be. So again, it's that kind of, and I'm mindful as I say this, that I'm also speaking from a, a paradigm where the goal is bigger and better is best you know so so but there is this question of where do we where do we go um so I've been thinking for a while about I'm sort of going to pinpoint a couple of elements in this constellation of thoughts but one aspect is how anyone listening to this or you or I might be able to play a part in helping each of us to reconnect so there's a question around reconnection and around considering again what we think has value or what we feel has value in the world so you know, I, I do lots of speaking around behavioral science for a living and it's intellectual to a part, you know, it's fine. It's stimulating on up to a point. But actually the things that get left behind are the things like the music and the art. And I know that you're a poet and a photographer as well as all of these other hats that you that you sit with. Um, and I think there's so there's one question around that, around bringing these other qualities and practices into the conversation and seeing how much value they have. So bringing people together to access their music, to access their their paintings. So many people are disconnected, even just from that, from themselves. Then I think there's also another challenge that I personally encounter a little bit, although that voice isn't so loud at the moment, which is, you know, if you're interested in these sorts of things and you want to go onto a retreat or in my exploration of all the work that you do, you see people who are living into some of these possibilities, creating these experiences, then the question that can be limiting can be, not can I do it, because I think many people could engage in this in some way, either hosting these sorts of events, collaborating with others. But then a question becomes, what could I possibly have to offer that's different or that will add? And I think as a cultural question, especially around individualism and how atomized and separate we feel, it's a very subtle question, but it's absolutely pivotal. And so then I'm kind of brought to this place of, oh no, but hold on, everyone, everyone has to work together in a small or larger way to make this possible because it's only through a weaving together of different people's experiences, entry points, people they know, the networks they're engaged with, that will actually move in the direction that we want to. So then it becomes kind of this more spacious question of what am I best placed to do in the life that I have with the resources available to me that can add to this movement of which I'm a part? And then that brings us all the way back to the connected piece, right, of the kinship with all. Um, And so I'm very interested in that and then kind of personally going and experiencing other people's offerings and then understanding where there's resonance and where there are things that I would want to do differently to appeal to a different set of people so that then there's an integrity to it as well as some of the key components that I think need to be present in order to to cultivate belonging and connection. And I think there's actually a lot of that happening and that's kind of um, something that sustains me is the amount of offerings on everywhere in the world of, you know, that the people are giving, that people are offering, um, all of these acts. And, and, and I think it was in the summary of the first season of my podcast, I kind of collected some reflections from many of the guests and it's this idea of just like local, little local heroes acts in your, and you know, and you create a pollinator pathway and it, it may seem like a tiny thing in your city, but actually then you activate your city block and then there's all these examples of the ripple effects. 
And so I would um, say that it doesn't always have to be a massive systemic kind of trim tab or leverage point, although those are you know, amazing. But there is this um, this ripple effect that we can't quite, um, that we can't trace. Mm. But that's why I encourage everyone to use their voice as much as possible, because as someone who writes, I do get occasionally people responding to me and being like, hey, this thing you wrote really, really helped me. Thank you. And if I hadn't published it because I was shy or maybe it's not different or, you know, and I've gone through, I have those voices all the time. <laughs> you know, the imposter syndrome, it's so real. <laughs> but but if if you just speak something that's true to you and launch it into the world and let go of it because it never belonged to you anyway, then you never know what it may touch and it may be carried away somewhere else and it may land in exactly someone's bookshelf or someone's, you know, wherever it may be to just, it might just touch them in a place they need. And and I don't think we should ever underestimate the cumulative effect of billions of those actions happening. Um, there's really something to it. That's very inspiring. Because <laughs> it's true, I think so much of, of the impacts of our actions are completely invisible. And so it can feel meaningless. But actually, I think there's something, again, that, that ties back to what you're saying earlier about the intrinsic meaning, that sense of does it feel life affirming to be doing this, to be, or, you know, whatever it might be. There's so many other questions I want to ask you. So one of the ways in which it seems to me that you you have a foot in both of these interconnected but seemingly fractious worlds is through Ground Effect, which is an investment studio initiated to explore an animist approach to applying capital in the interest of living systems. Just that sentence alone gives me a frist on this idea of animism and investment. Can you tell us a little bit about animist investment, how you came to that and what it does? Like, what does it hope to create in the world? Hmm. Um, well, for maybe for some of your listeners who haven't come across the term animism, uh, the way that, that I, and we interpret it, it's, it's almost like, um, like a physical practice of how you see and engage with the world. And it's an understanding that there are many other, um, people out there and only some of them are human. Um, and that there are, um, you have, um, kin, you have family, you have, equals in other forms of life. And so rivers or forests or, um, you know, hawks, they are not assets on a balance sheet. They aren't something you can get a return from. They are living beings who are absolutely equal to you. And if anything, you have a responsibility as we all do towards each other. Um, and so it's this vivid sense of the world is alive and how you engage in those acts of reciprocity and care. Um, that's my way of seeing animism. Um, and, and experiencing it very directly. So um, we began this this, anim, this animus investment vehicle, which basically directs financial capital towards projects that um, contribute to that, that philosophy or that worldview. And uh, you listed some of the, the categories, but it's very tricky because, you know, we've spoken in this conversation about some of the pitfalls and trappings and... Um, subversions that capital can can create. And so when you have a responsibility of capital and of this energy that it holds, how do you use that on behalf of living beings to be in integrity with what they may want, to know what you want from them? So an example may be there, you know, there may be a, a blue bond or a coral reef investment, right? To this restore the corals. A, what is the mindset I'm doing it with? Am I doing it because I know that this is a great financial opportunity and it's just I'm just sort of wonderful it's tick the box you know it's ESG it's green but then I'm instrumentalizing this in, I'm instrumentalizing this ecosystem I'm interacting with versus asking the question if I was the coral would I would I want this kind of investment does this approach work for me and maybe that the coral can't speak directly so the those who speak on behalf of the coral are often those who have lived closest to the ecosystem in question so you you often have these voices of nature, these guardians or these local communities who may speak on behalf of the ecosystems. And so one of the areas of investments are Earth's living systems. And that's things like rewilding, because when you rewild, you allow that vivacity and that kind of natural exuberance of the ecosystem to return. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that feels quite aligned, I would say, with an animist perspective. Um, things like funding scientific research that expand our awe and our um, kind of wonder at the magnificence of nature. So things like mapping the world's underground mycorrhizal networks. Wow, that's so cool. So yeah, if you go to the website, there's this um, ground effect, there's an issue called Spun, and they're basically mapping 
um, the world's underground my- mycorrhizal networks and, you know, Suzanne Simard's work around while wow, the trees are speaking to each other. And there's, there's forms of research that illuminate just like life's brilliant intelligence. Mm. And for us, that's also animist because you're, you're enabling more understanding, more communication, um, between ourselves and the rest of life. Um, decentralization and ownership is a part of it because if your entire, if the entire world around you is owned by distant entities, and if you can't participate, and if you're not a steward of something, you're very distant from and kind of abstracted from it. And mm-hmm. so when people own and belong to and participate in more of their worlds, when they're engaged in participative democracies or shared ownership, or when they can invest in their local food shed, you know, through a crowdfunding mechanism or something of the sort, um, so we have a few investments in the agricultural space that allow that to happen, to invest in your local food shed. Uh, the first mutual bank in the U.S. in over a generation and wow. another um, agriculture crowdfunding network for um, medium and small sized organic farms or farms that are trying to transition to more ecological practices. Those for me are, are also animist in a way because it means that people start to participate again to the ecosystem they live in. And among those different projects are there one or two that really sing to you as success stories of of ways in which we could do things differently i'd say they're all in process currently still i think that there are many historical examples of of things that have gone really really well for me the rights of nature movement is a fascinating one so we've um, contributed to the rights of nature movement in, in different ways but the projects we funded are still ongoing but there's been incredible wins in that space of countries and cities and states allowing natural entities to have legal personhood. And that means that you can Mm. litigate on behalf of their control, represent their voice in the court of law. And in some cases, like in Ecuador, the Los Cedros Forest and others, you you prevent um, a harm that could happen. And it's a very different type of legal tool that also fundamentally shifts society's self-concept of itself, right? Because it's, you know, the ecosystem is no longer something that you own and you can litigate on behalf of, but it's its own individual entity that, you know, owns itself, if you will. Um, so I think there's a lot in, in the rights of nature movement that I think has been super fascinating in this space. And like I said, a lot of the scientific research, understanding how animals move, how nature communicates, is now greatly informing a lot of kind of global policy and let's say decision making on how we should intervene in ecosystems. And that's been hugely, hugely um, beneficial. So one of the things I think that we've touched on, you talk about inner work earlier and Buddhist practice. And in, a, in an interview that I heard you speak to in the Umbutu podcast, you touch upon the theme of collective initiation and why we shouldn't be doing this alone. I was wondering if you can talk about a little bit about the moment that we're in, what you mean about initiation, what it means to cross this threshold intentionally and together. Hmm. The language of, of initiation um, I borrow it from the kind of from the vision quest language here. Um, and the vision quest, as I'm sure you know, is a sort of um, indigenous ceremony that many of our ancestors did, European ancestors, but also ancestors all around the world. Um, and it was a process of going into the land and often fasting and being alone and going in with a prayer and uh, you're four or five days out in the land Um no shelter, no distractions, no books. And the whole purpose of that was to initiate you into some larger story, something beyond the confines of your, and the limitations of the self. Um, and, and to enter into a larger self, into the, right, the, the sort of, um, how would I describe it? I feel it's like enmeshing yourself into the larger whole, simply. Mm. And, Initiation means you have to let things go. You have to let things die. It's like any cycle of life. And so you may be initiated through the death of a loved one, through sickness or through um, a more intentionally orchestrated way, like going into a vision quest. Or um, for some people, psychedelic experience can be an initiation. But it is essentially when some reference and version of what you thought you were dies (laughs) at the end of the day. And then also what you think of the larger system that also dies. It may be a belief around whatever, right? 
Um, but something fundamentally crumbles and that is in service of making space for the new. But that, that process of initiation is not sexy. Often it can be quite painful um, because there really is a, a mourning and a grief and a loss of something, um, even if it is in benefit to or in service to your to growth and I think to, to a more um, holistic or wholesome version of, of yourself. So for me, initiation is that which you kind of, you know, there's a threshold that you draw a line in the sand and you step over it and there was someone before and there's someone after. Um, and, and that for me is initiation. And often it can happen in our individualistic material society, quite alone, without support, no elders, no guides, and you don't really know what to do with it. And you're fractured and you're broken. You don't quite know who to turn to or what to do. You can't make sense of it. Hmm. Um, and I think that the climate, uh, ecological and social and just the breakdown that we're facing means that many people are flung into, um, very, very challenging, um, contexts and it can be an initiation of waking up into, you know, I, uh, didn't think twice about the gas usage in my house and then I'm in Texas and, you know, the there's a freezing winter and there's an, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I'm actually dependent on this wider system. But losing the individuation and realizing you belong to a larger collective can sometimes be very, very scary and very painful um, and beautiful, but painful. So I think that we're facing a lot of humans, um, some kind of initiation into more truth, if you will, of, of, of dependency and interconnection. And my fear is that we don't always know what to do with that. So whether it's something that people are wanting to welcome in intentionally through practice, through various different ways of experiencing that kind of threshold stepping, if you like, what are some of the practices perhaps or processes that you might offer for people to kind of find some sense of connection or support or togetherness with a wider web of life that, you know, they're not alone in their, in their grief and their loss and their new becoming, this sort of changing I think there are many groups that are already in operation who are present to support people in that transition. Search for people who do nature immersions, who guide vision quests for different guides. They are on the internet, they're there, and I think that they are incredibly equipped to, to, to do that. Um, and generally, you know, this phrase of what you seek is seeking you. I think that if you're sensitive to it and if you listen, um, in the moments where big shifts come in your life that are often in service to your, your, your greater growth, people show up in unexpected ways. And you kind of just have to be a little bit conscious to listen to the breadcrumbs, you know, and um, pay attention, like pay attention to what might be right there. Every community, every place has, I think, resources. Um, and then there's the very simple things that, you know, are, that we've spoken about, but it's just, slowing down, being in touch, letting yourself feel, letting emotions move through you, shouting into a pillow if you need to shout, like, um, you know, just, just spending some time silent, close to a tree, that, not to be underestimated, all of those simple things. Sing, um, but don't numb it because that won't be helpful in the long term. Don't shut it out. So if I was going to ask you, what societal or systemic transformation you're most excited about? What might you answer? I think it goes back to the beauty point that I mentioned earlier. Um, we are surrounded by gifts every moment of the day, every single moment. The fact that our bodies are here and that they function, the fact that we can breathe, the fact that we can taste food and see color, like... And expanding that, how that, um, how that kind of rapture in beginner's mind can um, enthrall us into relationship with each other and with uh, more than human life. So I long for people to um, understand that everything they need is already right here, that we don't need to keep chasing, that the relationships, that the beauty, that the health, it can, it can be right here. Um, 
And as it relates to the larger whole, I long for human beings to be in a more animistic, pagan, worshipping, playful, <laughs> celebratory relationship to nature again. And that it's not, oh my God, the climate crisis is here and this is terrible, but okay, I get to participate and tend to and care for my ecosystem. I get to fall back in love again with the earth. Um, a lot of Thomas Berry's work, you know, on this sort of spiritual, ecological relationship. I would love for us to have religions and churches that are in service to that relationship with nature, because it also brings that that beauty, I think, uh, very palpable and very close. So, you know, we'll get there. <laughs> I really think we will. I really do think there is there is this in the future, um, as much as there is that right now. Mm. It's so funny you mentioning the services to nature. I live um, I live in Barcelona and the Sagrada Familia is a beautiful church to visit. But what's extraordinary, when I went to see it the first time, when you walk inside, it's like stepping inside a forest somehow, like the scale and the beauty of the structure. And I always had wished, this is before I knew much about it, I always wished, I was like, maybe could the sacred family just be trees? I wanted it so badly to be trees because that's what I saw when I entered the space. And that sense of joy and imagination, it wasn't, it wasn't crushed. I mean, it was a bit excessive, but it was dimmed when I realised, oh, no, this is, and this is not to denigrate people's faith. You know, I was raised Catholic. It didn't work for me, but, you know, I know it works for other people in my family and friends of mine. But it, it just, there was a sense of just a longing for us to imagine our connection to something much, much more than just a human family even if it's a transcendent human family just the idea of a transcendent like there's so much I'm not even going to go into that but just this this kind of sense of that there would be so much love poured into our love of nature so much effort into creating something which would celebrate it in that way and obviously we celebrate in other ways maybe it's just very simply around a campfire underneath you know canopy of stars and that's very beautiful in itself but um I must I must just comment on that you know like Jesus and the Old Testament and many of the old texts from all faiths, from Judaism, from, from Islam, were deeply ecological. Um, these were all faiths that were rooted in nature. Um, and, and it's right there. It's really, really right there, even in, in some of those beliefs. Um, and there was an understanding that, that you needed to tend to that ecosystem or relationship to be whole. It's funny, isn't it? Because people... I actually think Sorry, that the. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, oh, big topic end of the podcast. <laughs> I also think that um, a large untapped resource for this whole kind of moment of transition are interfaith groups, because fundamentally they are about worship and community participation and ritual, um, and turning that on in relationship to ecological obligations and nature. I think is could be really, really exciting. Mm. Because there are parts of the story. Someone said this to me recently. They said, you know, when people talk about the Buddha, they talk about the Buddha's enlightenment. They don't talk about the tree. When people talk about Jesus going and becoming enlightened in his way, they don't talk about the desert. They talk about the teachings that he comes back with. And every part of these stories, also it's because of what I'm choosing to look at, but there's, there is the presence of these different living beings that are fundamental characters in the story of a threshold being crossed into a new sense of humanity's role, capacity, potential. So it does exist there. It's just kind of we've got the emphasis skewed yeah. in my <laughs> sort of reading of things. I don't want to go too far down. I don't want to sort of poke the bear too much. But um, so there's a couple more questions I wanted to ask you. And one of them is, well, one of them is a personal question, which is when I look at the different projects you're involved in, First of all, I'm like, oh my God, this, this woman is living an extraordinary and rich life and it's very exciting to see. Another part of me is going, oh my God, I'm wasting my time doing X, Y, and Z. How do I do more of that? And another part of me thinks, how do you find a way to weave these things together so that you don't burn out and so that you live in a way that feels sustainable for you personally as an individual? <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> uh, work in progress. Um... <laughs> I think you get fed by doing things that bring you joy, right? It brings energy. So I'm, I'm lucky that I'm Swiss. I'm very structured and organized. And I, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm good at taking care of my day, but I'd say that I don't do it all at once. So because of the work at the lab and the work with ground effect, 
I'm maybe not doing the learning journeys right now, but maybe I'll do one or two a year where I bring a group into nature. And all of the creative work just pours out at random times. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the I am I am not, you know, I meditate and I do all the kinds of things you can tick off the box. But uh, near the end of last year, I was very, very close to being burnt out. And I actually took winter and her quietness and the mutedness of the snow to just say hot chocolate and fire and no email. <laughs> so I think I think the one thing I'm, I'm happy for is I am not a slave to my technology or social media. I don't spend a lot of time in that. Um, it can really just suck you in. Um, I haven't experienced that, but I've seen it happen. I think just, oh, I don't know. I, I, get, I get tired and I overwork just like everyone else. Um, and, and how it all weaves together is that by being inside of the lab and understanding how all of this scientific analytical um, stuff and biodiversity is evolving, I get to make more intelligent investments of ground effect. Hmm. Um, and by cultivating connection to the land and speaking to people like yourself and others who I speak to on the podcast and otherwise, I get to hold myself accountable across all of those things to make sure that I'm not straying too far from, from my own, um, relationship to, to to place and to life beautiful and so before i ask where people can find you because people are going to have probably a lot of questions about the extra resources that they can digest my last question to you is how do you orient yourself towards hope on dark days hope is a word that i don't relate to interestingly enough um because we have there's this this great unknowable everything in the middle of everything and so for me it's it's more about can I find this moment special can I what we what we've spoken about in this call right can I just have presence in this can I find this wonderful and I think one of the issues with the idea that there's some outcome in the future that may make me happier than now is that is a big source of suffering um hmm. so yes look I I don't have hope, but I do know that a lot of good is happening in the world and that the cumulative effect of that will be magnificent beyond what we can imagine. And I do also know that there will be incredible suffering and that it will be a sad world to, you know, in some ways to raise a child in like with both of those parts. So for me, it's more, can I orient towards the wholeness? Can I orient towards the beauty? Can I orient towards the joy? And that for me is, I guess, my way of doing the thing that some people call hope. But it's more like what sustains me. I love that. I might actually use that for the next and ongoing <laughs> <laughs> questions. It's so much fuller. Thank you so much for that. That was just Thank you. a very moving <laughs> note to end on and a very moving and inspiring conversation. Alexa, if people want to find out more about you, I will include all the links, but where are the best places for them to check you out? They can come just find me in the forest. That would be best. <laughs> See you on a path. Um, uh, AlexaFermanish.com has threads to the lab work and the podcast and all the other things. Um, on social media, on my name. Um, yeah. And um, the podcast has a lot of resources for people who want to learn about um, different ecological themes and how they can be involved. So point you less to me and more to other people doing good work as well <laughs> amazing it's been such a pleasure talking with you thank you so much yeah absolutely thank you <laughs> thank you for listening to the hive podcast with me natalie nahai if you've enjoyed the show please do pop over to itunes spotify or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and a review it really does mean the world to me to read your support and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording and producing each episode. To find out more about my work, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources and you can reach me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.